0: dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reid Galen. Today, I'm joined by Lincoln Project senior advisor and co-host of The Breakdown, Tara Setmeyer. Tara, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Reid. I'm also joined by Lincoln Project senior advisor and longtime political strategist, Stuart Stevens. Stu, thanks for coming on board.
1: Great to be here, man, thanks.
0: So we're gonna go through a few things today. We'll be talking about the Voting Rights Act case heard by the Supreme Court and Governor Greg Abbott of Texas reopening the state. But first, I wanna talk about the latest memo from the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is Kevin McCarthy's super PAC. And the CLF is basically where Kevin McCarthy warehouses all of his big money the individual contributors who give five, six, seven-figure contributions every 18 to 24 months to try and either keep or retake the House of Representatives for the Republican Party. And this is what he said on Tuesday. He said that they have a plan to take back the House next year, and the document noted that all 15 House seats that Republicans flipped in 2020 were won by a woman, a minority, or a veteran, and these are the types of candidates that should be recruited. The memo goes on to say that Republicans will benefit from the Democrats, quote, increasingly out-of-touch policies, like keeping schools closed and attaching a progressive wish list to COVID relief. However, the memo warned the biggest threat to this plan was insufficient Republican candidate fundraising. Tara, it seems to me that with this memo, they're outlining things that could be beneficial to them, but they're so craven in nature that it's basically like tokenism on paper. It really doesn't matter who these people are so long as they check some box demographically or geographically or biographically rather than whether or not it matters who these people are, what ideas they may have for governance.
2: Sure. That's been the playbook for decades now. You look at some of the quality of the candidates who ran minority candidates, for example, they were not necessarily the most qualified or the most experienced. They ran as long as they were a minority. For example, in places like Baltimore, you had Kimberly Klasick someone who was completely unqualified to run for Congress. She had no background whatsoever in politics, questionable background, actually, in what she did for a living. But she looked the part, sounded the part, raised lots of money outside of her district in Baltimore, had absolutely no chance whatsoever of winning. But yet she was heralded as the new Republican Party and how wonderful she is because she checked a couple boxes. That was pure tokenism. The Republican Party has been doing this for a long time. And I think I was naive to how much of it they were doing until the Trump years, because you saw the types of people who they were putting up just to prove to people, see, look, we're expanding the party. You know, we're not racist. We're not misogynists. (laughs) And yet you're always going to find apologists that will toe the line for their own political gain. Unfortunately, the people allow themselves to get used all the time. I just don't think that the average person looking at what's going on They're looking at these people and hearing what they're saying and the platform that they're running on, what they're bringing to the table and saying that, oh, yeah, the Republican Party is so diverse and they're really expanding their tent here. There's no way you can say that looking at some of the people, even the ones who got elected in this last election. When you had two black Republicans get elected to Congress, which is probably the most black Republicans I think we've had in Congress in a couple of years since Will Hurd, who was not a token, Mia Love. And Tim Scott, at one point, were the only black Republican members of Congress. And now you have these guys, Burgess Owens. From Utah. Right, from your home state. This guy is a disaster. He believes in QAnon conspiracies. He's completely unqualified, all because he what? He used to be an NFL player. And now he's a member of Congress spewing that nonsense. I just think that the Republicans, that's the way they've approached minority recruitment in the past anyway, which has been a complaint I've had for a long time with the party there wasn't a real investment in candidate recruitment of quality candidates. If you check the couple boxes, that's great. I just think it's really transparent what they're trying to do here.
0: So to add to the imminently insulting nature of recruiting folks simply because of how they look, where they come from, those sorts of things, these folks have no proactive ideas of governance or leadership. Instead, it's we're going to be helped and advantaged by the fact that we're just going to talk about how crazy the Democrats are.
1: Yeah, you know, this really touches a lot of different themes that have been around in the party and accelerated of recent years. I mean, I wrote about this in my book, It Was All a Lie. There was a period when the consensus was that Republicans didn't do well with African-Americans because we didn't know how to talk to African-Americans. So there was this phenomenon of African-American consultants who would come into campaigns that were predominantly white staff and white candidates to teach us how to talk to African-Americans. And I'm embarrassed to say the degree to which we paid attention to this. And there would be these moments when they would say, so the way you can get African-American, when you talk about jobs, you have to talk about meaningful jobs. And we would all sort of nod and think this would work. And of course, it never did.
2: Partially because, Stu, you would go in at like six weeks or eight weeks before an election to talk about that, as opposed to spending years doing what Jack Kemp suggested, which was establishing relationships in the communities. So you had that trust and demonstrated that the conservative and Republican policies would help them. The problem was that there was no relationship. You kind of just went in there to a fish fry six weeks before an election talking about we're going to promise you meaningful jobs. It was a whole cottage industry, Stu, of those kinds of consultants, believe me, In the 20 plus years that I was involved in Republican politics, I saw a lot of those hucksters that took advantage of some of those campaigns, pushing that nonsense, knowing that it would never work.
1: The realization I came to was the problem wasn't that African-Americans didn't understand Republicans. The problem was that they did. (laughs) And they knew exactly what we were saying, as evidenced by the fact that when you would have African-American Republican candidates, they wouldn't do much better among African-Americans. So it's very difficult to say that, you know, someone like Tim Scott doesn't know how to talk to African-Americans. There was unwillingness to come to grips with the lack of meaningful governing philosophy and our failure to convince these people that this would play a major role in bettering their lives. So there was a substantive problem here. There wasn't a communication problem. And I think we still have that. The Republican Party still has it. I guess I can't say we anymore because I left. To me, there was always this fundamental disconnect that when Ronald Reagan would go out and say, sort of as a joke, but also as meaning, the most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm here from the federal government to help. We would all nod and laugh. We thought this was funny and thought this was true. How do you square that with a group of people who tended to be more on the lower economic spectrum and many minorities, but not all minorities, who believe and have seen that government in many ways is one of the key ways that they can better themselves? How do you put that together? I think there is an interesting way to do that. Certainly, with compassion and conservatism and ownership society, it was something that Governor Bush attempted to address in the 2000 campaign. Of course, that was all eclipsed on 9 11. But that failure for the party to ever be able to speak to these people in a way that they found it convincing and authentic and genuine and not opportunist is. The fundamental problem that we still have today.
0: Well, the last thing that McCarthy noted, and I think that the Lincoln Project has already started on this, and I think that we certainly will continue on it, was that McCarthy is worried about the fundraising. And we saw this in the wake of January 6th, when we were among the first people out there calling on corporate America, you know, anybody of these 147 members of the House or the Senate who had voted against democracy, you know, should get no more PAC money from you, should get no more of this. We went after some of their biggest donors who clearly we understand now from conversations we have behind the scenes are very, very, even unto this day, very unhappy with us that the light would be shown upon them. We know that in, you know, the wake of the January 6th stuff, McCarthy was worried about his fundraising. He went to K Street, said, I'm going to be speaker in two years. You better open up your pockets now or I'm going to remember you. We know that, you know, he had to do a money call with his members at the National Republican Congressional Committee, the NRCC, where he said, I'm trying to raise $2 million. Who gave up the most money? Marjorie Taylor Greene put in 175 grand immediately. So like he can't get out of his own way. But we will be on the march on this stuff, which is if these candidates do not and will not subscribe to, you know, fundamentally pro-democracy, pro-American values in their campaigns, they should get no money from any of these folks. And I think that we will continue to do that both on the corporate side and the large individual side as we go forward. And I believe that this may have the ability to drastically not only reduce the amount of money that both Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell have to use in their midterm campaigns in 2022, but that will have an effect strategically where they will have to decide not where can I pick up seats or where can I protect seats, but where do I have to sacrifice things?
2: But that's important, Reid. I think people need to realize that the money in politics Really does have a huge influence on how these politicians behave. Because if there's no accountability, and for years, a lot of times these corporations and these PACs have been able to get away with giving money to whomever, depending on where they need the favor, you know, where the power structure is, without the average person really knowing about it. They've been able to do it without the level of scrutiny that it's now coming upon them because people are paying attention. They're going, oh my goodness, now we can't get away with funding these politicians who were pro-insurrection and pro-big lie because the American people are now paying attention to this and they're going to have to answer for it. So if they want to continue to fund those members of Congress, well, that's their prerogative. But don't think there won't be consequences for it because I don't think the average person who buys their products or uses their services will be too happy about spending their money with corporations that are funding politicians who are fundamentally anti-American, that are funding these authoritarian light wannabes and putting them in Congress. There's consequences for it.
0: Well, and I would also say as three people who've probably spent far more time thinking about corporate communications or corporations generally and having to deal with some of their own issues as consultants, that there is no more sensitive group of people in the country than corporate CEOs to their brand image, that it takes very little pushing to get them to do if it's not the right thing, at least to stop doing the wrong thing. And we saw this with a lot of companies. Charles Schwab shut down their pack altogether. Microsoft, after incredible pressure from Steve and others, you know, said that they were going to stop giving money to these folks. And so just for everybody out there listening, you know, it doesn't take much from you. It could be a tweet. It could be an email. It could be a phone call to the corporate headquarters. They will run for the hills if they believe that it is in their corporate interest to do the right thing. They have to hear from enough of us. So we'll get to that. So I want to move on from Kevin McCarthy trying to retake the House to Republicans trying to keep people from voting. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments for a case that threatens the integrity of the 65 Voting Rights Act, which we should note was already pretty much gutted in 2013 by the Supreme Court. The case calls into question two Arizona laws that seek to disenfranchise voters by doing two things. One, by limiting methods of ballot collection, and two, by discarding ballots that are cast in the wrong precinct. Democrats, obviously, are arguing for the court to strike down these laws, saying that they disproportionately limit voting access to people of color. Before we get into this discussion, I would like to play a clip from the Republican attorney who actually makes the Democrats' case for them.
1: What's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the uh, out-of-precinct voter ballot disqualification rules on the books? Because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. And every uh, extra vote they get through unlawful interpretations of Section two hurts us. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing okay, an election thank you, my time is
0: So the female voice you heard there was Amy Coney Barrett. So, Stuart, let me start with you. He says out loud, we don't want this because it means Democrats are going to vote more. And also, politics is a, quote, zero sum game now. In too much of the United States, and too much of our political system, that happens to be true, but that's not why politics exists. So you always say about your book, it didn't go far enough. You weren't pessimistic enough. But now we have a Republican attorney for the Republic, Arizona Republican Party basically saying what we've all been saying now, for some of us for months, some of us for years, that they will change the rules of the game because they know that their product is no longer viable.
1: This all goes back to this fundamental failure of the Republican Party to Adapt to a changing America. And it was a choice that the party has made. There's been attempts to change that. I mean, if you look post 2012, if you go back and read the so called autopsy after the Romney laws, what it was encouraging the party to do was pretty obvious, but it's always good to say these things appeal more to non white voters, appeal more to younger voters, et cetera. Now we've sort of given up on this. And when you have a rapidly changing America, And you have a failure to attract large numbers of non-white voters. What are you left with? You can't stop these people from existing. You're left with trying to stop them from voting, which puts us right back in the Jim Crow era, which is why these people who tried to disqualify millions of Americans, African Americans predominantly from voting, like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, we call the Jim Crow caucus. You know, I have this like fundamental, very simple view of this that the Republican Party will be a healthy party when it realizes that the more people vote, the better it will do. (laughs) That's like, why is it that just obvious? And to go through these contortions to try to limit voting, make it more difficult to vote, is just fundamentally an admission of a failure of the party to attract large numbers of voters that are entering in the system now and the way the country is changing.
0: And Tara, as someone who has dealt with a lot of this stuff throughout your career, I'm always fascinated when people in politics actually tell the truth, uh, the (laughs) so-called saying the quiet part out loud. Right. (laughs) I mean, this guy, he had to know he was going to get a question like this. And so I guess he just decided, you know what, I'll give you the answer that is true as opposed to the answer that's probably legally beneficial to me or at least politically beneficial to me.
2: Well, it's clear that the Arizona Republican Party isn't sending their best. (laughs) to represent them in front of the Supreme Court.
0: Well, they might be. Unfortunately, it's just not that good.
2: Well, yeah, perhaps this. It reminds me of some of the historical problems with the Republican Party and this history of voter suppression. You know, back to the Southern strategy, which we've talked about in the past. You fast forward to the 1980s, early 80s, when that consent decree was handed down to the Republican National Committee. Basically telling the Republicans they need to cut the shit because they'd been doing these types of, you know, voter suppression efforts, not through legislation per se, but through other voter intimidation tactics. And I encourage people to go and Google it and read the history of what happened in my home state of New Jersey and voter intimidation at the polls and what they were doing with mail-in ballots and things like that. So the Republican National Committee was under a dissent decree until 2018 and it was finally lifted which opened the party up to go back to these shenanigans. The combination of the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act being struck down in 2013, the preclearance part of it, which is the Shelby decision, and then the 2018 lifting of the consent decree for the RNC, has created this environment to give license to the Republicans to continue down this voter suppression road for this zero-sum game of we have to do whatever we have to do to make sure that we don't encourage more Democrats to vote that is so anti-democratic <laughs> like that is against what the quote party of ideas is supposed to be about this case that's right now in front of the supreme court's arizona case is really consequential because there are two aspects of it even though it started years ago this isn't a new case you know it takes a few years for it to get up to the supreme court and in 2016 when the case was brought who knew where we would be in 2020 But the two parts of this really strike to the heart of because when you have a Supreme Court case like this, it sets precedent. And so a lot of other states are watching what's going on here because it really is an example of what Republicans are going to try to do going to 2022. You look at these state legislatures in 43 states that have introduced 253 bills that all have some aspect of voter suppression behind them because they're looking at ways to stop more people from voting so they can have this, quote, advantage over Democrats. So the Supreme Court case is consequential. And the reason that the two things, one is the ballot harvesting part of this, right, where people say, oh, you know, it should be illegal to allow other people to collect ballots and bring them to the drop off points because there can be some type of fraud. Well, the Ninth Circuit decided that In Arizona, the case specifically for this, that it disproportionately impacted minorities because in a place like Arizona, you have Native Americans who live on reservations and minorities who are in districts where they change the precincts or it's difficult for them to get to the polls. So this idea of allowing people to lawfully collect ballots and drop them off is something that it's not the act itself. It's the result that's problematic that disproportionately hurts minorities. So that is a violation. That's what they're looking at right now. The other part of this is changing precincts. Do they disqualify ballots if you vote in the wrong precinct, even if it's for, you know, governor or statewide office where precincts shouldn't matter? That's something else that disproportionately hurts minorities. And when the judges are listening to this, they recognize that the impact is greater for them. So therefore, it's a violation, potentially, that's the argument, a violation of the Voting Rights Act, because in minority districts, what do they do? they move the precincts around all the time to make it more difficult for people to find where they're supposed to vote. That seems to happen more frequently in minority districts. So these are all little tricks, and little things that are going on on a local level that are now coming into the national spotlight that we have to pay attention to because this idea of trying to prevent people from voting it's becoming a, a, a national crisis, and there's legislation that's out there to help address this, and we need to keep our focus on it.
0: And I believe in most states, and then we'll have to go back and check this, is that if you vote in the right county but the wrong precinct, your ballot is considered provisional, that it has to be confirmed, that where you live, that you're actually registered, but it doesn't just disenfranchise you altogether. Uh, And I think that's really the other part, too, is to your point, this is really about the disenfranchisement, which is if you live on a reservation, if you work during the day and you're not able to get to the elementary school or wherever the precinct is, if it's a county government center, there very well might be folks who are afraid to go there. They're lawful American citizens, but if you've got to go to the county government building, they're just not going to do it. It's something that they're just not comfortable with. And so, um, Rob, why don't we play the Democratic attorney's response? She represents the Democratic secretary of state on how uh, the Democrats in Arizona see this.
2: Petitioners have pejoratively called Section 2 a
1: one-way ratchet. But in a democracy, we should actually want to ratchet up participation so that every eligible citizen who wants to vote can do so. Candidates and parties should be trying to win over voters on the basis of their ideas not trying to remove voters from the electorate by imposing unjustified and discriminatory burdens. Unfortunately, petitioners have made clear that that is not their vision of democracy.
0: So if the Republican guy said the quiet part out loud, then the Democratic attorney there, I think perfectly outlined exactly what he'd said and what it is they're trying to do. They've lost the marketplace of ideas. In fact, they've abandoned it because it now just goes to power.
2: And to explain to folks who don't know what section two is, Section two of the Voting Rights Act provides remedy for districts, precincts, people to challenge whether there are voter suppression efforts happening. So they're trying to water that down, make it more difficult to challenge these things. That's the part of Section two. Section five was the pre-clearance section, where you know these states and precincts who fell under it had to go to the federal government, the Department of Justice, and say any changes that they wanted to make to their election rules and they had to go and get it cleared by the Justice Department to make sure that it was, in fact, not discriminatory, because there were all kinds of tricks that, that, that were being done historically to prevent people from, of color from voting in the past, from literacy tests and other ridiculous things. If you, <laughs> if you were to go back, I mean, counting the, the suds on a bar of soap for goodness sakes. I mean, it was nuts. So those are all parts of the Voting Rights Act that this Arizona case is challenging. And the irony about this, is that the ballot harvesting part of it, in 2011, Arizona actually tried to go through the preclearance process to make that change, to try to say that, you know, they didn't want that. The Department of Justice said, wait, hold on. We need to see more evidence that there's any fraud with this method. Where, where is it? And then they backed off. They said, oh, well, when they had to prove it, they just they withdrew their their case. Then they after the 2013, where preclearance was basically erased. They went ahead and moved forward a couple of years later and then passed this. So, this has been an ongoing, very nefarious attempt to disenfranchise minority voters. And um, I think a lot of people are going to be watching, particularly civil rights activists, will be watching the result of this Supreme Court case.
0: Well, and there are two bills in Congress now H.R. 1 in the U.S. House and For the People Act in the U.S. Senate that I think go a long way to trying to address some of these. We'll probably do a standalone show on those shortly just to get a sense of really what's out there and what's possible. But before then, let's move a couple of states east to the great state of Texas, a place I consider one of my homes. This week, Governor Greg Abbott, in the wake of making sure that he blamed a massive power outage and water outage on the Green New Deal and frozen windmills, made sure that more people in Texas will die by claiming that the state is, quote, 100 percent open and that he had ended all statewide mask mandates. Now, I've known Greg Abbott since I was a very young man, which is now a long time ago. And I will say that I don't know that there's any high elected official in any place in the country who has done more to damage his reputation or to totally abandon who it was he was going back to when he was Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court or Attorney General than Greg Abbott. And I believe it's because he thinks he's going to run for president in 2024. But this is one of those where, you know, his act this week really sort of brings all these things together. Remember, it was Greg Abbott who demanded that there could only be one ballot drop-off place per county in Texas. There are 258 counties, I believe, in Texas. There's a lot of them. But 240 of them don't have any people in them. But Harris County, where Houston is, you know, is the third largest city in the country, and, you know, it had one ballot drop-off location. Whatever it is Greg Abbott does tends to have a disproportionate effect on people of color or lower income, uh, like this getting rid of the mask mandate will do and opening the state again. And Stewart, far be it for me to leave out your home state of Mississippi, who also made the same decision. What I think is interesting here is that Texas has always been literally and figuratively a pull them up by their bootstraps kind of place. The biggest sin in Texas for years was not failure, was not trying again. But everybody understood that the trade-off of a limited government was a very strong sense of community. And that if you were going to elect people, that you expected a lot of those people for what it was you were giving them, which was authority. And so now it seems like they want no authority. They want no responsibility. Why do these people even run for office, Stuart? Why does Greg Abbott want to be in the governor's mansion?
1: That's a very good question. And uh, I hope it's something um, that he asked himself in the middle of the night. Like you, I watched Greg Abbott's career and I never would have thought he'd end up where he is now. One of the great sadnesses of where the Republican Party is now, there are people whom we once thought had real potential, like Greg Abbott, like Nikki Haley, who now, you know, the best it could be said is they have great futures behind them. This whole politicization of masks, I think, is just going to be studied for decades, if not longer, as sort of an intersection of these factors in the Republican Party, an anti-government faction, an anti-intellectual faction, and faux-anti-elitism. And it's sort of like how the Red Guard operated. Uh, We're going to go take the educated people and penalize them for being educated. It's a great tragedy. There really are very few places in the world dealing with the pandemic where masks have become politicized. I mean, if you look in Canada, you look at the very conservative parts of Canada, no one's on this anti mask thing. I mean, it's like, why not an anti seatbelt thing? It's really just a tragedy of immense proportions because. It's probably not an exaggeration to say hundreds of thousands of people have died as a result. And you look at Mississippi, you know, Mississippi is the most unhealthy state in the nation. It has the highest degrees of obesity, heart disease, kidney disease, poverty. All of these factors contribute to the likelihood that when you get COVID, you're going to die or be affected by it permanently. And I think it's just a tragedy what they've done what Governor Reeves has done there, and he knows better. He's a smart guy. And it's not complicated. It's just going to kill people. So Tara, before I get your thoughts
0: on this, I want to play Abbott's actual address on the opening.
1: So today,
2: I'm issuing a new executive order that rescinds
1: most of the earlier executive orders. Effective next Wednesday, all businesses of any type, are allowed to open 100 percent that includes any type of entity in texas also
2: i am ending the statewide mask mandate
0: you know he sounds very excited about this you know, and then he said, you know, I think he said after the fact or, or maybe one of his staff people said, but, you know, people should still use their best judgment as to whether or not they want to open their business or, or wear a mask. So, you know, it's it's all performative. But, you know, Tara, for the Republican Party, right, they scream about the Tenth Amendment states rights, those things not prescribed to the Constitution or reserved to the states and then all about local control. But the one thing that he made sure of was that localities and counties are not allowed to implement their own mask mandates that this is statewide and nobody can tell you to wear a mask anymore. We've seen this in Utah as well, where we do have a mask mandate. But for the most part, you know, if it happens in Salt Lake City, it's good for everybody. But if you want to do something different, you're not allowed. So it speaks to me that there's just a fiction of the sort of do as I say, not as I do piece, which is it's not about whether or not something's best for the individual, right? It's not about individual liberty or individual freedom. It's about scoring political points with people who I think are going to help me in a primary against a Dan Patrick next year.
2: That's exactly what it is, because anyone worth their salt knows we're in the middle of a freaking pandemic. People are still dying. Like this didn't just magically go away yesterday. It didn't just magically all of a sudden the whole country's now vaccinated and we can go back to our normal ways of life. That's not the case. And these people are operating in an alternate reality that is literally costing lives. We are at an embarrassing level of death in this country, higher than any other Western country in the world from COVID deaths. Right? We have the highest COVID death count because we had a president last year who politicized, to Stu's point, the wearing of masks, who demonized science, demonized medical professionals, The fact that anyone would ever question Dr. Fauci's credentials on this or whether what he's saying is something we should be listening to, he is one of the preeminent scientists in the world when it comes to to epidemiology. I mean, it's absurd. Our friend Tom Nichols, who, who wrote the book Death of Expertise, I encourage folks to read it because there is a whole phenomenon about what motivates people to reject science, reject facts, reject experts on things like this. And people become armchair quarterbacks. All of a sudden, everybody's a surgeon now. Everybody's an epidemiologist. They're an expert on things they have no idea about because that makes them feel better. I mean, there's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance here that is incredible. The people in Texas, they're going to kill other people in this country. This isn't just relegated to Texas. If they want to be idiots and expose themselves, well, you can say, well, you know, that's Texas's prerogative. But no, You can travel freely within the United States. So Texas has about a six point eight percent vaccination rate right now, which is actually lower than the rest of the country, which is incredibly low. Still, I think it's the average states around like eight to nine percent vaccinated. That is nowhere close to herd immunity. So why in the hell would anybody think that it's okay to just open everything back up again as if we're not still in the middle of this pandemic?
0: Well, and Texas has about forty five thousand COVID deaths, so about nine percent of the total in the country.
2: It's one of the most populous states. So, of course.
0: And I I was I was thinking about this yesterday, is that if Beto O'Rourke wanted to run for governor in 2022, his slogan should be Beto. I'm not going to kill you.
2: Yes, you're right. It's you know, this was something that um, on the breakdown recently, we had a guest. His name is Eric Ward. And he is really, really, really great on the issue of conspiracy theories and the impact that these like Holocaust deniers and conspiracy theorists, and how that impacts our lives. And he talked about the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories, that it's no longer just a a war of words. It's actually a deadly phenomenon that's costing lives. And part of the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories has bled into the coronavirus, masking, anti-vaxxers. These people now Their behavior impacts other Americans. When you have a a communicable pandemic disease like this, like coronavirus, you rely on the responsible behavior of other people to help you get through this until people can be vaccinated. And it's like we take two steps forward, we're taking 10 steps back now because you have a state like Texas deciding that they're just going to to hell with it. We're over this COVID thing. We're just going to act like it doesn't exist anymore. It's astonishing
0: because it will literally cost lives. Stuart, does competence matter anymore?
1: Well, part of what drew us to the Republican Party was the idea that it was going to be boring and competent and would be about first doing no harm. And, you know, that's all been thrown out the window. This Texas thing reminds me of I once went to an anti-motorcycle helmet rally with then-Governor Bush. And as we were coming away, someone observed, you can see why they're not very concerned about the issue based on the people who (laughs) were attending it we've reached this point where there are people out there who are tremendously successful, competent public servants. Look at Phil Scott in Vermont. Republican. They have, if not the lowest rate of infection and death. Um, He's just like a public servant guy. I mean, he really is. You know, the last time he ran for election he didn't run one ad. He just like ran. He said, I'm not going to run ads during COVID. And there's people out there like that. But I think that we have a political system now that particularly on the Republican side, that somehow has come to draw people who are not really interested in governing. And it goes back to this fundamental question of Republicans are anti-government as a party. Why do you want to be in government? It's sort of a paradox. There is a tremendous need for a coherent center-right governing philosophy in America. But for the life of me, if you held a gun to my head and said, what is that today? I would just say, "Shoot." And say what you will about the left. Say what you will about Elizabeth Warren. She has a coherent theory of government. You can hate it. You can love it. but She can defend it. And until the center-right comes up with something similar, that's not based on conspiracies, that's not based on just the idea that higher education is a conversion therapy to socialism, I think we're in for a period of center-left government. Because a coherent theory of government will beat an incoherent theory of government until something else comes out.
0: Well... We're going to leave it there today, but before we get out of here, Tara, what's going on on the breakdown this week first, and then second, where can we find you online?
2: Yeah, so the breakdown this week, we're going to be talking to uh, Brian Rosenwald, who is a professor from University of Pennsylvania, but he also wrote the book, Talk Radio America. He really wrote pretty much the quintessential book on the rise of right-wing talk radio and the impact that it's had on the ecosystem in the media. From Rush Limbaugh to Fox News and Newsmax and now OANN and how that all contributed to the rise of Trumpism. That's going to be a really interesting conversation because as we're having serious conversations about governing, right, about Biden being the adult in the room and actually governing as president and not just lobbing insults from his Twitter feed, you have Fox News running stories all day long about Dr. Seuss being canceled and Mr. Potato Head and the gender identity question. These people are over here whining about books and toys while the rest of America is trying to stay alive and get their businesses back on track, get vaccinated and actually live adult lives. So These conversations are important because that's what's being indoctrinated into the millions of people who watch these right wing media outlets. That's what they think this is about this culture war that's going to destroy America and indoctrinate their kids with socialism. Meanwhile, that is really an alternate reality. Meanwhile, the adults in the room are trying to get America back on track and be a pro democracy country. So, Great conversation coming up on The Breakdown this Thursday. You can always find us at 9 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Lincoln Project YouTube channel, Facebook and Twitter. My good friend, The Rick Wilson, is my co-host and we always have a good time. You can find me on Twitter at Tara Setmayer. As I say, there's only one of me, so I'm very easy to find on Instagram at the TheTaraSetmayer. And of course, check us out on The Breakdown.
1: And Stuart, where can we find you? Find me on Twitter, uh, Stuart P. Stevens. At Twitter, and I really would encourage everybody to watch The Breakdown. I think the great challenge of the moment we're in is to understand the context of it. And people are always asking, how did we get here? It's a long process. It doesn't happen overnight. We're not gonna get out of it overnight. But I think one of the great things about that show is it places this moment in context and asks a lot of the questions that really have to be. So I'm a great fan of The Breakdown, and I learn a lot every time I watch it.
0: Amen to that, and you can find me, at Reed Galen, on Twitter. And with that, Tara Stewart I want to say thank you for joining me today and everyone out there we'll see you next time thanks again to everyone for listening be sure to subscribe to the Lincoln Project on Apple podcasts Spotify Google or however you listen don't forget to leave a five-star review to connect with us follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln and for more information on our movement to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter visit lincolnproject.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.